0: There's a lot of emotion in the air lately, have you felt it? It's like the static electricity that makes the hair on your arm or neck stand up right before a lightning bolt slices through the summer sky. A highly charged atmosphere of anxiety and tension, fear, anger. So much anger these days. People are touchy, sensitive, bruised, kind of like ready to snap. I mean, we're into our fourth month of quarantine and a lot of people are done. They're just done with all the isolation, the social distancing, the rules, the masks. They've had enough. They're ready to eat in a restaurant without having to wrap oneself in plastic or go to the beach and swim or or just walk the boardwalk without restrictions. They're frustrated. They're ready for life to get back to some sense of normal. Others are frustrated too, but no way are they ready to lift all the restrictions. The COVID virus is still out there and they're mad. They're mad at the people who don't wear a mask, who don't follow the rules because they feel that other person's actions may put their own life in jeopardy. Whichever end of the spectrum you might be leaning towards, the emotions are often the same. And on top of that, add this second profound layer of intense emotion that sprang up from the racial unrest of the past weeks. The pressure has been building since the shocking death of Ahmaud Arbery while out jogging back in February. A pressure that exploded like a volcano in May with the release of the video of George Floyd's horrible killing while in police custody. For black people these deaths were piled on top of the long history of pain and brutality and deadly violence that has been brought against people of color even after the abolition of slavery in 1865. Yes, slavery was abolished, praise God, But what followed was a hundred years of lynchings and segregation, discrimination, economic slavery, the rise of racist groups like the KKK, the constant arbitrary violence against African Americans. Racism became embedded like a cancer in our otherwise great American society. And though the civil rights movement made great strides, the cancer of racism kind of metastasized into other organs of American culture. And so to be great, America has to take seriously the call to root out racism in all its forms. We want and need to be cancer free. Our own hearts cleansed of any vestiges of racism and prejudice. And also our nation cleansed from the sins of systemic racism. But there are a lot of emotions wrapped up in those topics. And then on top of that comes another layer of emotion. When we see peaceful protests kind of hijacked by violence, whether out of a sense of pure rage and frustration or from a calculated intentional strategy to create anarchy and unrest, some people turn to rioting and looting and arson and attacks on police officers and and first responders like, like the firefighters in Seattle who were pelted with bricks and bottles when they showed up to put out a building fire. And most of the attackers were young white people dressed all in black without police protection. They had to just pull back and let it burn. And that kind of societal breakdown stirs up a lot of emotion, makes all the other conversations about easing of COVID, uh, the reality of racism, the violence makes all those other important conversations a hundred times more difficult. And the emotions are all over the place and I just want to say that all those emotions are good. They're good because the frustration we feel points out that the world as it is, is not the world as it should be. Our emotions are like an internal internal uh, thermometer that's telling us there's something wrong. The world we're in, it's not right. Something is terribly wrong and we feel it deep in our bones. We know it intuitively. Our frustration comes from the sense that either someone or something has done us wrong or that things are just going in a direction that seems wrong to us. There's this internal sense that things are broken and we're equally frustrated because we don't know how they can be fixed. We're frustrated because we often, what we do often makes things worse by our own actions, our own attitudes, but we can't go back. We we don't know exactly how to go forward either. And so we're stuck in this middle. We have this internal sense of what ought to be and we are not there. We're stuck in the middle between the way things are and the way things should be. And too often the primary emotion, while we are stuck in that middle, the primary emotion is anger. Let me talk about that for a minute. I read a great book on anger recently by Dr. Gary Chapman. Many of you know his classic book, The Five Love Languages. And by the way, I hope you remember that we're co-sponsoring a live webinar with Dr. Gary Chapman this Thursday night June 25th at 8 p.m. with the VOCA Center in New York City, where he's going to talk about all the pressures we're going under these days. I hope you'll tune in. You have to register. You have to register by going to the VOCA Center's website, uh, vocacenter.com. Sign up and participate. I hope you'll do that. Well, Gary Chapman wrote a great book on anger. And one of the things he points out is that our sense of anger actually originates in the character of God because God gets angry. In the Old Testament, we're told 375 times that God gets angry. He's not angry like some vindictive, out-of-control drunk who starts smashing furniture. God gets angry about injustice. God gets angry when he sees people suffer. God gets angry over disease and hunger. God gets angry over our sin and rebellion. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus also got angry. It's not just some Old Testament thing. Don't fall for that phony dichotomy where people say, well, there's the God of the Old Testament was a God of anger, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. That's just completely false. Same God in both. We see Jesus get angry at religious hypocrites. We see Jesus get so angry at the way God's temple is being abused by the money changers and merchants that he he makes a whip, starts flipping over tables. We see Jesus in Revelation bringing God's final judgment on the world. Gary Chapman says God's anger comes from two sources, his holiness and his love. His holiness and his love. Holiness means God sets the standards for what is right and what is wrong based on his own nature. Simply what reflects his essential nature is right and what opposes his essential nature is wrong. He sets the division between what is good and what is evil based on his own nature and character and he's God the creator of all things. So he's the only one who has the authority and the power to do that. Holiness means his essential nature defines reality, whether we agree with it or not. And that's where his love enters in. It is his nature to love what he has created. That's why he loves us. It is part of his essential nature to love. He loves us even when we go against his nature. When we turn against his holiness and goodness, when our world rebels, when our world is marred by sin, it's from this combination of God's holiness and God's love that his anger is derived. Because God is holy and because God is love, he experiences anger when his creation is wounded, when it's hurt, when it's broken. In love, he only seeks the good of his creatures and his holiness stands against the sin that would damage our world. Knowing the damage that sin does to people, individually, to relationships, to families, to cultures, to our whole world, God's holiness and God's love are stirred into action. It's God's concern for wholeness and justice and goodness and peace and righteousness that stimulate God to anger. And when God sees evil and the damage done to his creation, it's a logical response is righteous anger. There's the world as it is and the world as it should be. The world as it should be is called the kingdom of God, God's peaceable kingdom. That phrase describes the reality where God reigns supreme over all things and his holiness and love intersect in perfect harmony. We're told in the book of Revelation that in God's kingdom, there are no tears, no pain, no death, no injustice, no suffering, no hunger, no pollution. It's God's perfect place that reflects his perfect nature. God's way of holiness and love is called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God has a king and his name is Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew that we're going to talk about in a minute. The Gospel of Matthew is built around this very theme of presenting Jesus as the king of God's kingdom. Now we don't live in that world. We live in a world that has rebelled against the king. A world that has rejected his holiness and his love and is now suffering the consequences of that rejection. This world is not the way it should be. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's in Matthew 6. We see this broken world that we live in is not as it should be. It's not right. And we're to pray that God's kingdom of peace and justice would come in all its fullness to set things right. That's the world as it should be. But again, that's not the world that we live in. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus told a parable about a land where people reject their rightful king. They say, we don't want this man to be our king. Jesus told this parable the day before Palm Sunday, that day when he rode into Jerusalem. People welcomed him like a king, but their sincerity was soon tested later in the week after Jesus was arrested, after he was beaten and flogged. He was interrogated by Pilate, who asked him if he was king of the Jews, because that was the charge leveled against him. And later his enemies rejected the kingship of Jesus by boldly yelling to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. It's John 19.15. They became just like the people in Jesus' parable. And in a sense, they reflect the testimony of every person on planet Earth who by nature has said to Jesus, I don't want this man to be my king. No wonder there's the world as it is and the world as it should be. Since the story of Adam and Eve through the events surrounding the crucifixion all the way to present day, we have rejected the king and the kingdom of God. And that's why our anger is so different from God's anger. Our anger is unproductive. We see the gap between the way the world is and the way it should be. We know the world is wrong. We know the world's messed up. We know there should be goodness and justice and fairness and safety and food, enough for all. But we carry this sense that somebody done me wrong. And so we're angry. That guy cut off, cut me off. And and that's wrong. I I didn't get the promotion and that's wrong. You didn't treat me the way I felt like I should have been treated and that's wrong. I I deserve respect. I didn't get it. You stubbed me. That's wrong. You offended me. That's wrong. You stole from me. That's wrong. My washing machine is broken and it's only a year old. That's wrong. A thousand times a week. We all have this sense that the world is not as it should be. All the ways, That we feel frustrated or humiliated or, or dismissed, embarrassed, rejected, wounded in trivial ways, but also in ways that really devastate the heart. Anger is often the way people try to fill that gap, that frustrating gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be. Now, Jesus has a different way to span that gap, a different way to bring those two worlds closer together. God's righteous anger at the way things are does not mean God loses his temper and is just going to smash up the world like a petulant child who has a temper tantrum and then breaks all his own toys. God's anger at our world's brokenness is channeled by his love into positive action. He takes steps to redeem what is lost. He takes steps to fix what is broken, to mend what is torn, to heal what is wounded, to forgive what is wrong. That's why Jesus came as our Savior. He came to bring us a taste of the kingdom, a taste of what God's perfect kingdom is like. And it's in Jesus that God's holiness and love come together perfectly as our Savior and Lord. And that's why he's the king of the kingdom of God. And that brings us to the things Jesus taught, the things he communicated to the people who began to follow him, as their king. In his very first public appearance, we're told this happened. Mark 1, verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus announces a new move by the king like a move on the cosmic chessboard. Now the king is in play. The king himself has entered the game. Things are so bad the king is taking drastic action himself and he's calling people, calling you and me and everyone to join his team. Repent and believe. Turn from the way of the world as it is and embrace the world as it should be. Become my disciple, my follower. I'll show you how to live as my kingdom people right here and right now. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' manifesto about the nature of God's kingdom and how we're to respond. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's the longest portion of the Bible devoted exclusively to Jesus' own words. And it begins this way. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. His disciples came to him. Massive crowds had seen Jesus do dramatic healings. Word had spread. Everybody wanted to see him. So many people were following that Jesus had to go out into the countryside and up a hill so he could explain to them the meaning of what they were witnessing. Historians know the spot Jesus chose in Galilee. It looks down on this great golden fields and the edges of the fields rise gently to form kind of a bowl. It's like a natural amphitheater for thousands who might have listened. You have to picture people coming in from all directions and kind of coming over the bowl and then filling it up. Their cloaks of brown and red and white splattered the hillside like the colorful flowers of spring. On this hillside, Jesus gathers with his closest followers, and then Jesus, we're told, sat down. When a rabbi sat down to teach, it meant he had something really important to say. Jesus had something important to say about the reality of God, and they were about to hear it. Now most Bible scholars don't think the Sermon on the Mount was just one sermon Jesus gave only one time and at one place. The verb phrase in verse two translated, he began to teach them. In the original Greek, the phrase is in what's called the imperfect tense, which describes a repeated or continuous or habitual action. In other words, Matthew was saying, this is how Jesus used to teach in those settings. Jesus gathered with people like this more than once, But this is the essence of what Jesus repeatedly taught. Back in the 1500s, John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, wrote that the design of the Gospel writers was to collect in one place the leading points of all things Jesus taught from all his different messages. These were placed in a precise historical context in Galilee, with the Holy Spirit directing the selection and the arrangements. If this had been just one sermon, it would only last about 10 minutes. No, Jesus probably taught in this way for many days, explaining all the nuances about the truth about God's kingdom. What Matthew gives us is their very condensed summary. The first words of the Sermon on the Mount are not called the Beatitudes, and there are eight of them. They are going to be our focus for the summer because the Beatitudes give us a clue about how to live the Jesus way. He wants us to live his kingdom way In the gap between the world as it is and the way it should be. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessedness because each one of these begins with Christ's blessing. What kind of blessing is Jesus talking about? What does it mean for God to bless your life? Does it mean you'll always be healthy? Your kids will have straight teeth? That you'll get A's on every test whether you study or not? That all your relationships will be happy and fulfilling? That every decision you make in business will be the right one? And You'll be able to retire early in luxury? That your life will be, you know, peaceful, profitable, perfect? Is that what it means to be blessed? A lot of health and wealth gospel preachers teach that. But experiencing the blessedness of God doesn't mean that all our problems vanish. Living the life Jesus' way means we are in the process of changing and becoming the kind of people God wants us to be as citizens of this new kingdom. Many people look at the Beatitudes like they're just these pleasant little sayings, but impossible to live. So I mentioned earlier, the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as God's king. The Sermon on the Mount is given to explain the kind of kingdom Jesus wants to build into the lives of his followers. The Beatitudes actually describe Jesus' way of life. Jesus modeled a way of living that exemplifies the truth of his kingdom, and that's what he put into words in the Beatitudes. They are a practical model for spiritual growth. And as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you know, you stand in grace, but then you start growing. You start growing towards deeper grace, turning to Jesus, sort of like a plant turns towards the sun for warmth. Growing your faith means becoming more and more like Jesus. And so his attitude, his mindset, his worldview, his actions... If you're sincerely a Christian, then you should have this inner desire to begin to mirror his life, to to echo his voice, to reflect his beauty out onto this broken world, confused world, because because he lives in you. The Beatitudes have to do with the rule of God in your life. In a sense, Jesus wants you to live like a king. He wants you to live like a king, to live like King Jesus. And how did Jesus live? Not an, an opulent palace, not with servants bowing and scraping, not ruling through fear and punishment, but with humility, with concern for the poor and those who mourn. And as we go through the Beatitudes, what we'll discover is that they simply describe the way Jesus lived, how Jesus lived out God's kingdom values right in the middle of the world as it is. And so his life was so different, so counterintuitive, because he didn't just go with the flow, He demonstrated God's way of holiness and love right now. So that's our challenge, to live like a king, that we should live like him. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan called the Beatitudes the manifesto of the king. Jesus the king is telling us how to live like kings. He's telling us how to reign over our ego so that we practice humility and not pride. How to reign over power so you build up and not destroy. How you reign over impulses so that you crave righteousness and not garbage. We live in such a time of deep divide and unrest, emotions running wild. Signs of this painful gap between the way things are and the way things should be are everywhere. I mean, that's what the pandemic is. It's a sickness, this death, this fear. The world is not right. It's what racism is. It's a sign that the world is not just. It's not as it should be. That's what this violence is. It's a sign that we've rejected our rightful king. And so conflict is going to rage between people and groups and nations and races. What if these simple blessings from Jesus offer us an alternative? What if these sayings are actually the keys to our liberation? This week, I want you to do something. Keep a little journal of all the times you get angry, of all the things that make you mad, that make you upset, that get you frustrated, all the little angers that you normally keep hidden, all the times when you felt like saying something but didn't, or maybe you did say something, and the big things, all the times that you wanted to throw something at the TV or punch your computer screen, all the things that make you feel like you're being pushed near the edge, make a list and see how all those things describe the way things are, and then decide that you'd like to live a different way, the way of Jesus, the way of King Jesus and his coming kingdom. Amen.